So we're in Mark chapter 10, and we're going from verse 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, what do you want to do for... Sorry. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. While the ten heard about this, sorry, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I was away last week and uh, I have a feeling I might repeat a little of what Paul said last week. I haven't managed to have a listen yet, so apologies if I do, but hey, maybe that's because God wants to impress it on our hearts, perhaps. I don't know. Um, The disciples... And Jesus and this crowd are going to Jerusalem. They are on their way up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is leading the way. I wonder why it says the disciples are astonished and the crowd are afraid. It doesn't really say why, but I just wonder. Do they sense that trouble is brewing? You know, what, what, what interaction have they had with Jerusalem? Well, some leaders, some um, Pharisees, some teachers of the law have come down from Jerusalem to check Jesus out, to try and trap him, to trick him. And now they're on their way up to the place where they've come from. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, and another passage in another gospel says that it says Jesus set his face on Jerusalem. He's steadfast. And I think they know what awaits them, perhaps, in Jerusalem but not totally. When they enter Jerusalem, it will be the Sunday. On the following Friday, 
Jesus would be crucified by the Romans. And in this passage, he again predicts his death. He takes his disciples aside and he tells them his mission. He sets it out. He's going to be handed over to religious leaders. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be given to the Roman authorities. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be killed. But it's not out of his control. These events are planned by a pur- uh, and purposed by a sovereign God. And three days later, he would rise in victory. So he's been with these followers for a while now. He's been close with them. But it's interesting to see they still don't totally get what he's about. They don't totally get the kingdom message that he is bringing. So, James and John come with their request. And they go in with an outrageous request. It's not the type of request we normally get, is it? Sometimes we might say things like, I've got a bit of a favour to ask. In fact, I had a phone call from Jonathan this week. On yesterday, I can't remember what it was, yesterday, Friday. I've got a big favour to ask. We say that, it wasn't really a big favour, was it, actually? But we kind of use that language, don't we? I've got a big, fa- big favour to ask you. Uh, can, you, can you help me out? Do you remember when you said... Do you remember when you said you would help me out? Well, I've got a favour to ask. That's the kind of language we use, isn't it? Is it? Do you yeah. use that? Yeah. Yes. But what do they say? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's outrageous. It's like saying, uh, Jesus, can you just kind of write us a blank cheque but we'll, we'll fill in the amount, don't worry. So I guess they're probably a bit surprised when Jesus wants to know what, what, they, well, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> How often do we treat God like that? Jesus, it would just be great if you could do whatever I want. He becomes a slot machine almost. You know, we put the money in and out comes the comfort we want. Out comes the uh, thing we want. Out comes our requests, our demands. We ask him, he gives it to us. That's how it's meant to work, God. What can you do for me? And if you can't, yeah, that's how people see God. If you can't do anything good for me, well, what's really the point? God refuses to play that game. That's not the type of kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. It's not a kingdom to meet our comforts. See, we think it revolves around us, but we are, we are dead wrong. So Jesus, uh, James and John were blind to this kingdom. They were blind to what this kingdom was about. And then we see the other disciples' reaction. They are pretty annoyed with James and John. However, are they much better? Are they really much better? Because they're not upset by James and John's sinful attitude. They're really not. They're upset that if James and John get those places, they're going to miss out. 
You might say, that's reading a lot into the passage, isn't it? That's, we've seen already. If you read Luke, um, uh, in Luke chapter 9, you have the disciples, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? And they won't tell him, they're embarrassed. Come on, Jesus, no, we're arguing about who's the greatest. So, you know, it would not be so out of character for these disciples to be annoyed at James and John for that reason. They're no better. But, you know, it's true that actually a lack of humility is easier to spot in other people than it is in ourselves. See, we all know someone else who needs to grow in humility, don't we? We can all sit here this morning and think, oh, it, so-and-so's, so-and-so's not here this morning. Oh, they really needed to hear about humility. Oh, I'll, t- I'll tell them to get the download. I'll tell them that they really need to listen to it. They need to know about humility. But we rarely spot it in ourselves. The need for it. Because it's not always something we can spot by outward actions, by just simple behaviour. In ourselves, it's more of a heart issue. And, you know, we prefer to judge other people's actions, other people's behaviours than than our own hearts. So, I'm not, I don't want to, as we look at humility, I don't want to kind of have this all-encompassing definition of what humility is. Um, But I want to look at this passage and say, what does Jesus say about humility? What does he say? See, I love that Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, you still haven't got the idea. Look, we're almost in Jerusalem and you still haven't got it. Look, I'm finished with you guys. Just go and find somewhere else. You, you failed. No, he doesn't say that. See, that's what's so unique about the Christian faith. This is not some kind of set of principles, some teaching. You've got to learn, you've got to pass until you make the grade. No, no, this is a relationship. In a sense, Jesus has passed the test for us. That's where we start. And, uh, and now he's shaping us. And now he's moulding us to be more like him. That's discipleship. That's what discipleship is. He doesn't give up on them. And do you know, he doesn't give up on you and I this morning either. So back to humility. This is, uh, this is a quote from John Calvin, who was a um, a theologian in the 16th century and he was quoting one of his heroes um, Augustine who was a Christian even a lot further along ago 4th or 5th century and this is what he said John, this is what John Calvin says he liked about uh, something Augustine said he said he liked that, um, that he said Augustine said that when when a public speaker was asked what is the first uh, precept what's the first rule what's the first principle of public speaking. The person asked, delivery. What's the second? Delivery. What's the third? Delivery. And Augustine goes on to say, so if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. So what is it that Augustine... What is it that Calvin is pointing to? That should ring in the ears of Christians as they live out their life. Humility 
Humility, humility. And if it's that important, we need to know what it is and what it isn't. It isn't just, you know, when you're not very good at something, when you're really good at something and you pretend you're not very good. Oh, I'm not very good at the piano. Oh, no. Play some lovely tune. It's not really just never really being sure about anything, always being a bit woolly. It's not never taking a promotion at work. It's not being a doormat for everyone else to walk over you with their demands. Actually, here in this passage, Jesus says that humility is how we serve, how we suffer, and how we are saved. So let's work through these three this morning. How we serve. See, James and John say, can we have the top place in your kingdom? Can we have the positions of greatness? And Jesus says to them, you want positions of greatness? Look, don't, don't look to earthly structures to work out what positions of greatness are. Don't look to earthly rulers. Don't look to the high officials that are around you. He redefines their idea of greatness. He says, look, greatness is to serve. He says, greatness is for your attention to be on others, not on yourself. Because we'll see, as Jesus says, himself. He came not to serve, uh, sorry, he came not to be served, but to serve. See, do you ever find yourself thinking, what can I get out of this relationship? What can I get out of this? What can I get out of this person? What can I get out of this friendship? What, What can I get out of helping this person? Do you ever find yourself saying that, even in your head? I do. I do. No, no. We serve one another. It's not about what we can get out of it. We serve one another. And we serve those around us. See, let's look at, let's look at um, our community here at Jubilee. You know, there are many ways to serve one another in daily life. There are hundreds of ways that we can serve and love one another. And I want to talk about a few as well. Um, in terms of as we meet together as a church corporately. You know, our Sunday mornings, it takes a lot to do Sunday mornings. Much, much of the service, serving happens before many of us arrive. We just kind of walk in and it's done. It's great. I'm so grateful to everyone, and we are so grateful as elders, to everyone who serves uh, in many ways. Much of it goes on, we don't see it. Or people who are here long after we've gone for our dinner, they're serving, faithfully serving. It doesn't just happen. (coughs) There are plenty of opportunities for you to serve on a Sunday morning. If you want to know how, come and ask us. We'll let you know. What about our children's work? You might think, what's the point? What's the point of, you know, they're, they're just kids. I'm not, they're not going to be impressed by my knowledge. They're not going to, I'm not going to be able to impress them by how well I prepare or anything like that. What's the point? And it all happens out there. No one's going to see me. I'm so grateful for our children's workers who are shaping a generation. They really are. I am so grateful and thankful to God for them. 
but we need more. You could, why don't you, you could get involved in children's work. Hey, that will keep you humble. Kids will keep you humble. I guarantee it. They will not be impressed by your, anything you try and impress them with. We need more. Open door. Safe families for children. What we're doing uh, at Hope with Brambles. Um, there are uh, so many ways to serve. And I, I, we can't name them all. But so many. <coughs> what about saying, you know, that person there, they're, they're new in their faith. I, I want to get alongside them. I want to help them grow. I want to help them learn what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give time. I'm going to give effort. I'm going to give energy to that person who's new in their faith. Do you want to be great? Do you want to know true greatness? Become a servant. So first, how we serve, but secondly, how we suffer. How we suffer. Jesus' response to their request was this. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? See, the cup, the cup I drink, the cup was often used in the Old Testament as kind of imagery, really, for suffering. In particular, uh, uh, particular, uh, uh, the suffering under the the wrath of God. I got in trouble yesterday for saying the wrath of God, didn't I? The wrath, is it wrath? Wrath, wrath. The wrath is okay. The anger of God, particularly. That's what the the imagery was used for. Listen, this is from Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, for you have drunk the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. And Jesus would pray the night before his death, take this cup away from me, this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath, but, but if this is your way, Father, do you know I'll do it? That's what he prayed. And on the cross, he'd suffer. He would experience the wrath of God because of the sin of you and I so that we wouldn't have to. And when he talks about baptism, can you be baptised with the baptism I'm going to be baptised with? He's not talking about the act of baptism that we had in the notices that Christians are called to He's not primarily talking about that. He's talking, uh, baptism in the Old Testament was, was kind of like, a, a, um, there's, there's this whole kind of imagery about being flooded, immersed by uh, suffering, uh, by pain, being engulfed by water. Uh, and if you want an example of that, Psalm 69 um, is, is an example of that. But then Jesus says that, you know, they will. They will experience similar suffering you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with my, the baptism I'm to be baptised with. What's he mean? Well, you know, he's not meaning that they will suffer the same as that he was going to go through on the cross, that he would experience the wrath of the God for the sins of the world. You know, that was only for him to take on. But, you know, what he was saying was, you know, to follow me will not be some pain-free, comfortable, easy cushy ride. I don't know how you translate cushy. Easy. Discipleship would mean cost. It would mean suffering. This was a non-negotiable as far as Jesus was concerned. And do you know he was right, actually? James, we read in Acts 12, James, 
was uh, killed by Herod. He was martyred. We can read that in the New Testament. And John, John would have been persecuted, and John was eventually exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. So he was right. And you know, the same is true for us. There's always a cost to following Jesus. Will it mean physical suffering? Will it mean imprisonment? Will it mean death, similar to James and John? Well, actually, for some of us, yeah. Yeah, it might. Do you know, I, I'm certainly, certainly for many of our brothers and sisters who have come from nations where persecution is so great. Do you know, it may mean that. And they will have come from, you will have come from, experiences such as that, Iran, Eritrea. But actually, for all of us, it will mean that every decision we make becomes a discipleship issue. Every decision we make is a discipleship issue. Suddenly, the decisions we make, how we use our time, how we use our money, what friends we spend time with at school, what work colleagues think of us, what school friends think of us, the choices we make, suddenly we may suffer because of them. But do you know, a life following Jesus will far outweigh any of that cost. Will far outweigh it. Now, last week's passage, Jesus said, no one who's had to give up things for me in this life will, receive, will fail to receive a greater inheritance. <laughs> it's interesting, I was watching all the news this week about the D-Day landings uh, and the commemorations 70 years on, and I kind of think, do you know, they knew about cost. <laughs> they knew about suffering. They didn't hide from it. I kind of think, I want my life to count. Or, I don't know, you want your life to count. And I don't want the cost to hinder me from following Jesus all out. Now, I'm not saying go out and look for cost. Go out and find suffering. I'm just saying don't be surprised when it happens. Do you ever find yourself doing that? I'm suffering for following Jesus. This is a surprise. I find myself doing that. Why is this happening? Meant to be, everything's meant to be rosy. Do you find that? You suddenly start thinking, what? And then you realise, no, no, Jesus said, it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be plain sailing. Perhaps you're aware of a cost right now that you're facing, following Jesus. Perhaps you're suffering because of it. Listen, don't be surprised. But know that God is shaping you in it. God is moulding you in it. He is committed to making you more like his son, like him. So finally, we've looked at how we serve, how we suffer, but also want us to look at how we're saved. See, the reality is, many people in this world suffer. Some are religious, some aren't. 
many people experience suffering. Many people serve. Many people serve courageously in this world. But actually, without this final one, in one sense, the other two can be meaningless. Because the answer is in what Jesus says in the final part of this passage. For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, humility that will ultimately count in our lives will be the humility that we find in Jesus and whether we are humble in our response to that. See, uh, reading around uh, people who write uh, books, uh, Bible commentaries and things like that, they all agree that Jesus is referring here to an Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah where in chapter 53, Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord. And you can read that in your own time. The servant of the Lord who would take on himself the sins of the people. All the rejection of God, this servant would take on himself. He says, my righteous servant will justify many. He would, be, he would be a ransom for them. See, we're familiar with ransoms, aren't we? Perhaps in a hostage situation... A ransom is given to free a hostage victim. It's an exchange. It's a cover for his life, her life. And Jesus says his life will be given as a ransom for men and for women. The servant Isaiah prophesied about was God himself. In Christ, God would take on the punishment that you and I deserved so that we wouldn't have to. At the cross, he would be a ransom for you and me. I'm restored. You are restored. We are restored, able to approach the living God, not in fear, but in confidence. The walls have come down, like Medi was saying. The walls have come down. It's this humility that changes how we live. Because I'm, re- because I'm restored to God, because I am uh, brought back to God, I'm now able to serve in a way where it's not about me. It's about others. My my serving becomes an act of worship. Your serving becomes an act of worship to God. As I see and as I look on Jesus' ultimate act of service at the cross. We're able to face cost. We're able to face suffering in a new way. See, the cross and the resurrection show us that suffering is not pointless. the The world tells us. The world, that's what the world tells us. It's what Paul talked about in Corinthians when he said that they look at the cross and they see it as foolishness. But to us, it's the power of God. They can't see any sense in it. What's the point? But to us, it's the power of God. See, because of Jesus' ransom, you and I, we belong. We belong to him. Do you know there will be cost? Like I said, there'll be cost, there'll be suffering. But I know who I belong to. 
and you know who you belong to. So humility, it affects how we serve. It affects how we suffer. And it is effectively at the heart of salvation. I want us to pray. And if we've got time, we may respond in a song. Um, but I want us to pray. If the band could come up just in case we need just in case we want to. But let's come before God in prayer. We're coming to the one who knows every thing that is happening right now in our lives. We're coming to the one who knows everything that has happened and the one that knows everything that is going to happen. And do you know, in all those joys or in all those failures. He's changing us. He's moulding us. He's committed to making us more like him. Perhaps you're aware that you are facing suffering right now. You know, he wants to come by his spirit to bring strength to bring fresh hope, to enable you to live for him through it in the light of the cross. Perhaps you're aware of cost right now. Perhaps you're aware that there is a decision to be made and there will be a cost to it. The decision will be to follow Jesus, but there will be cost to it. He says the inheritance found in me is far greater than any cost you might have to face right now. And he wants to come afresh by the Spirit with joy, with a sense of love, grace, enabling you to make that decision to follow him. Just bring it to him. He's here. He's here by his Spirit. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's a big decision like you know, the one we've heard this morning about from Jill and Andy. You know there's cost to it. But he's calling you, his dear child, to follow him. Perhaps it's a relationship. I'm not sure whether to pursue that relationship. Do you know, maybe saying no, and there's cost to that. But he's calling you, his dear child, to follow Jesus. Lord Jesus, we recognize and enjoy your lordship of our lives. We say, You are King, you are Lord. We give you not just the periphery issues in our life, we give you our whole life afresh this morning in worship, 
knowing that you gave everything for us. And that now you send the Spirit to live in us. He lives through us. He empowers us for daily life. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we think of those in other nations that are suffering so severely for choosing to follow you. We ask, bless them. We ask, strengthen them, particularly nations that are represented here. Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iran, others. Strengthen your church. Strengthen your bride. Lord, I ask for anyone here who perhaps doesn't know you, that perhaps is wanting to reach out to you, to make that first step to say, you know, I want to choose to follow him. Lord, come and speak to them this morning, I pray. Enable them. Help them. Thank you that as they reach out to you, you even more, infinitely more, reach out to them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's respond in song. Let's stand. Let's give our attention to this Jesus who is wonderful. You know, we sang about the beauty of his sacrifice earlier. How beautiful is his sacrifice for us.